0: From Gimlet Media, this is The Knot, a show about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Brittany Luce. Okay, so let's go back down memory lane for a second. So it's 2005, and I'm at my high school lunch table talking with some friends about our upcoming spring break trips. And our conversation went from beaches to bathing suits and then diets. Weight Watchers, low-carb, all of them. I saw one of my friends count out 20 almonds. 20 almonds! I'm guessing because 21 might have been too much. (laughs) But she was trying to stick to the South Beach diet. It wasn't the first time I'd been exposed to what some call diet culture. This was around the same time my parents were on this really big Atkins diet kick. And Mom, Dad, I love you, but that year we ate a lot of George Foreman grilled chicken breast and bag salad from Costco, and I was hungry. I was a student athlete. I needed something to eat. But anyway, I say that to say dieting wasn't new to me, but talking about it so openly with my friends was. It was so weird to me that some of the people I spent so much time with in the drive-through of the Taco Bell on Orchard Lake Road were suddenly talking about eating less. I mean, for what it's worth, after spring break, we were all back in the Taco Bell drive-thru line anyway, so it's not like it became this major thing for my friend group. But it was suddenly there. That was the moment I realized that conversations about dieting and thinness were always going to be a part of my life. And since then, it's been 14 years of so many more spring breaks and breakups and weddings and New Year's resolutions and office weight loss challenges. Something I haven't had a lot of real conversations about, though, is why? Why do we diet? The answer is that a lot of people fear being fat. Consider the way fat people are treated. Fat people earn less money, receive worse treatment from medical professionals, and even just have a harder time finding clothes than thin people. And all of these conditions are part of a phenomenon called fat phobia. And recently, I spoke with someone who has changed everything about how I thought about weight. What you have been told by uh, medical practitioners,
1: what you have been told about the size that you need to maintain is not rooted in scientific findings. In reality, fat phobia is rooted in two things,
0: the transatlantic slave trade and the spread of Protestantism. That is Sabrina Strings, and you heard her right. Our society's collective urge to diet can be traced back to the slave trade. Sabrina is a sociologist and assistant professor at UC Irvine, and she's just written a book about the racial origins of fat phobia called Fearing the Black Body. She got the idea to study this because of something that happened when she was working on a totally different project. I was working at a predominantly
1: black HIV and medication adherence clinic which was in Bayview mm-hmm. Hunters Point.
0: I oh, was in San Francisco. In
1: San Francisco, yes.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: So it was my job just to talk to the patients there and ask them about whether or not they were taking their medications. And there was one day in particular in which I spoke to two women. One was Latina, one was Black. And I asked them whether they're taking their meds, and they each said no. They made it clear that they were afraid that by taking their HIV meds, they would gain weight. I thought, oh,
0: wow, this is actually incredible. These women would rather skip their life-saving medication than gain a few pounds. But Sabrina was almost more surprised to witness this within a predominantly Black community, among two women of color. For Sabrina, the encounter got her thinking about how the thin ideal presented itself in her own life.
1: It reminded me of conversations that I'd had with my grandmother. My grandmother had been asking me in the 1990s, why are white women dying to be thin? She would hmm. watch soap operas and notice that the characters on there always seem to be losing weight. And she was like, what is going on here? You know, what does it mean to them? <laughs> she was a little bit surprised by the fact that people would actually want to be slender because in her life, especially growing up, she was trying to gain weight. This is like the 1950s and early 1960s in Atlanta, Georgia. People considered her to be too slender. They would tell her things like she had, like, peg legs, chicken legs, and so she felt a little (laughs) bit of shame surrounding the slimness of her physique until she got to California in early 1960s, and she noticed that, oh, actually, the white women I'm living around are on diets. Why are they doing that? Um mm. but my mother growing up in an integrated community, I think she felt a little bit more pressure to be slender. My mother was very big into doing like the exercise videos. And so sometimes mm-hmm. at night, you know, when she would turn on her Jane Fonda, we would do our 30 minutes, okay, back and forth. All right, now <laughs> lunch. Lunch, you know, we would have we would have a lot of fun with oh, it. Oh
0: man. I have memories of Taibo like that. Just oh, all yeah. of us in the living room. Wanna make sure I have a trim waist. Yeah, yeah, this is before yeah, waist yeah.
1: trainers. Wanted to make sure mm-hmm. I had nice legs, you know, I was buxom, yeah. you know, I grew up in a black community in Los Angeles County. Pretty much what we would see a, on an Instagram model today is what was popular in my community growing up, and it's what I aspire
0: to. I'm not sure when you grew up. I grew up in the 90s, and Same like, here. you know, in the middle of like, just like, it was diet central all the time,
1: Thinking about what I had witnessed in my own lifetime, what I saw was that Hmm. there was this tremendous phenomenon of dieting that was largely amongst white Americans that appeared to be trickling in to communities of color. A lot of second-wave feminists are asking why women are on diets, but I was asking why white women were on diets. I thought, you know, there's an element of whiteness that is integral here that people are not paying attention to. Mm. I was particularly investigating the thin ideal. So... I found myself going Mm -hmm. back further and further in time to try to find, okay, but when did this begin? When did this begin? And I finally landed on Cosmopolitan magazine from the late 19th century, prizing slenderness, but making it very clear that they thought that slimness was an index of racial belonging. So they would say things like she's, you know, a Scotch Highlander, so tall and slim, you know, with green eyes. They had these very clear delineations of what it meant to be Irish or Nordic or Scotch and how that played out in a woman's figure.
0: I want to go back even further back in time and talk about this particular magazine that caught my eye when I was reading your book. It's kind of it kind of feels like the OG American women's magazine and mm-hmm. it's called Godie's Ladies Book.
1: Yes. Godey's Ladies' Book was the top women's magazine in the 19th century. It began in the 1830s. The 1830s was a critical time for a number of reasons. First of all, we're starting to see a greater influx of Irish Catholics coming to an Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. So already we have Mm. this tension with immigration. It was also coming on the heels of a religious revival in America. Protestantism was cropping up in a variety of new places, and there was an intense fervor about it. And the first editor of Godies was someone who was a proud Anglo-Saxon Protestant who was involved in these revivals. This woman's name is Sarah Josepha Hale. Sarah Sephahale Hale was born in New England, and she was devoted to the idea that she could educate the next generation of elite and well-behaved Anglo-Saxon girls. And so what she wanted to write about was how to be a proper middle-class American lady. And to her, mm-hmm. that involved being A good Christian, as you might expect. She wanted to be able to detail what are the qualities of a good Christian. Well, you know, a good Christian would take care of her children and listen to her husband. And a good Christian woman would also show restraint in the
0: face of food and drink. They would call it temperance at the table. Wait, so how how common, like, would a sentiment like that be, have been in a way? Like, don't—you shouldn't really be drinking too much. You shouldn't really be drinking at all. But also, <laughs> you shouldn't be eating too much because that's, like, the godly way. How common was that sentiment in magazines back then?
1: Oh, it was extraordinarily common. One of the things that they often like to suggest was that a person couldn't be fashionable and be fat. That right? sounds familiar. And so there was a way— <laughs> <laughs> right, And yeah. so there was a way in which this whole like notion of like being a good Christian also filtered very readily into notions of being a, a fashionable American. You know, you've got to be able to fit into these clothes that the designers are producing. A lot of what we saw in Godey's was then later reproduced in various magazines like uh, Harper's Bazaar in the mid-19th century and
0: then also Cosmo in the late 19th century. They picked up that very same strain. So Godie's Ladies' Book, the shorthand I've been using for it is sort of like it feels like the goop of the time. It's like the original (laughs) Goop. It's like essentially a newsletter that's going out aimed at white middle-class women trying to give them ideas and standards for sort of how to live their lives. I say this as a black woman who is barely middle-class because I live in New York, (laughs) uh, who has been a, like, honestly, since its inception, a Goop subscriber. It's this sort of very kind of like um, a combination of like uh, expert-driven and homespun advice that's meant to help you live a quote-unquote better life. And the thing about Godies is that it was a really old magazine. Mm-hmm. Vogue and Cosmopolitan are also really old magazines. It's easy to forget how old the tradition is of using women's magazines to tell women how to live their lives, but also like they can sort of be these vehicles for kind of dangerous ideas. We think about magazines as a
1: form of entertainment, but... These have been far more consequential than we've appreciated. When I first started doing this research, I was being encouraged to look at women's magazines. And I thought, but that's not what scholars do. You know, why would I look at these women's magazines? Like, who cares what women's magazines would have presented? And it wasn't until I came across the racial discourse that I realized, oh, actually, this was one of the few outlets where women, especially white women during the time, could see themselves reflected. (laughs) This Mm. is before women even had the right to vote. If they wanted to hear about their own concerns, a women's magazine was probably the one place where they could see that.
0: And so it did end up being very consequential culturally and in the lives of women. I want to talk about like one specific essay that you talk about in your book that comes from Godey's Lady's book called Chapter on Female Features. So it seems like it was like a lengthy essay written by a woman named Lee Hunt, who had submitted this article to be printed in in Godey's. It seemed like this this specific essay, Chapter on Female Features, was a little bit different than some of the ones that had been published previously. Mm -hmm.
1: Lee Hunt wanted to make it very clear, not just that it's important for Anglo-Saxon Protestant women to eat little and to maintain trim physiques, but that if they were to overeat, they would slide into the grotesque association with African women. According to Lee Mm -hmm. Hunt, if you want to be fat, you would need to go to Africa. Because in Africa, their women are prized at what would approximately today be considered 300 pounds. To the readers, the audience that she's writing for, they're supposed to be triggered by hearing that, oh, not only is overeating improper for my race, But then I become associated with Black women because fatness
0: is only prized in Africa. And so this essay, it it seems like it's drawing this line in the sand, they're big, we're not. Yes, exactly. This is one of
1: the things I talk about in the book, which is race being a double agent. We know that race is used to denigrate people of color, but we don't Mm -hmm. often pay attention to the fact that race is also being used to discipline white people. And especially in this instance, white women. It's a way for them to be reminded of the fact that they're of the, quote, superior race. And therefore, there are different rules, different types of discipline
0: that obtain to their bodies. I feel like it's just like such a high stakes thing to put in a women's magazine. It's just sort of like, do you want to be out of favor with God? Do you want to be fat? Do you want to be black? (laughs) Get in line. (laughs) These are the stakes for you. Yeah, But like this essay... It seems like it was kind of like the first of its kind, tying the godliness to the thinness to the to the whiteness. What changed? Well, then you have, especially by the time something like
1: Harper's Bazaar was gaining in popularity, there were mm-hmm. a lot more women who were writing into the magazine trying to figure out what would be the best way to lose weight. What's the diet that I should mm. adopt if I want to be slender? You keep people... Thinking that one thing is wrong, but there are all these different new ways cropping up as to how to solve the problem that, well, you
0: yourself have created in a sense. It's like a content cycle. It's like a perfect content cycle where it's like you put the fear of God, literally the fear of God for somebody about maintaining their figure so they can maintain their status in white society. And it's like a white Christian lady. And then they write into you asking you, okay, so what do I do? Like, how do I stay thin? How do I lose weight? What should I do? And then you can just like, you can write a million more articles about eating crackers or seltzer water or Kellogg's cereal. One of the more popular diets was
1: actually something that was popularized by an 18th century Scottishman by the name of George Shane, who suggested that people should adopt a milk-based diet. And so what you start to see in Harper's are these very same ideas that women could, you know, maintain the proper physique for God by drinking largely milk.
0: A milk diet. That sounds about as ridiculous as eating cabbage soup for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or replacing two-thirds of your meals with milkshake-inspired appetite suppressants. Or counting almonds. Sabrina's research revealed that fad diets aren't new. They might even predate baseball. But as she continued to untangle the ties between whiteness and thinness, Sabrina realized that beneath all the goofy diets and fashion trend pieces of these magazines lay a foundation made of racist pseudoscience. More on that after the break. ¶¶ Welcome back. So we left off with Sabrina telling me about how thinness became a major goal for middle-class American white women. But just how did it end up so closely bound with whiteness? Well, to understand that, we're going to go back to the same bad race science that was used to justify slavery. Race science began in the 17th century.
1: And at that time, Mm -hmm. it was mostly, okay, well, if you go to Egypt, you might find women of this skin color. If you go to the Americas, you'll find people of this skin color with this sort of Mm -hmm. like facial features. There was definitely a hierarchy embedded, even the very first racial theorizing, because they were Mm -hmm. suggesting that the, quote, first race was the Europeans. It was over time when the slave trade really started to blossom that race was being used to suggest not only are people different from us, but they're constitutionally inferior. So in Africa in particular, the idea was that people had no self-control. They would eat to excess. They would fornicate whenever they felt like it. They would suggest that Black people were an excessively sensuous people. And so Mm. to justify ongoing enslavement, The claim was that, well, we as Europeans are rational. We know how to govern ourselves. Because we know how to govern Mm. ourselves, guess what? We know how to govern other people in the
0: colonies. And obviously these people have shown through their behavior that they don't know how to govern themselves. And so we need to be in charge.
1: Exactly. And, you know, one of the key ways in which they show they don't know how to govern themselves is that they can't stop eating, according to the travel logs that were coming back from various colonists.
0: Oh, my gosh. You
1: know, they saw this festival known as Art of Fattening in which people were engaging in eating great amounts of food. They saw that people like to spread fat on their bodies as a form of, like, lubricants. You know, we think about literate Europeans reading about what was happening in the colonies, and they would often hear about how greedy Africans were. And because they were greedy and they were involved in these festivals of fattening, they were also uh, corpulent,
0: as they would call them at the time. So... When we talk about like sort of like how throughout the centuries different theorists and writers and thinkers try to develop ways to sort of classify people by race or by ethnicity, I would use like a shorthand to describe all of that as some sort of pseudoscience. What is the value of having a scientific difference between white people and black people?
1: Science comes in to validate um, various forms of biases in terms of race science. There's one thing if you're just having various colonists or travel writers go to various parts of Africa and say this is what they saw. It's like, okay, maybe they saw something peculiar. It's a different thing to suggest that there's a systematic way in which we can identify the traits of people of various nations. When we see race science, there's an argument here that this is endemic. This is constitutive Mm. of people of this identity. And therefore, we should expect that
0: all of them are like this. Right. And and that racist pseudoscience ended up informing how a lot of people felt about fat people, mm-hmm. still feel about fat people for centuries to come. You know, employers, classmates, even doctors. You know, there have been real consequences to this. I wonder, do you see any similarly um, pseudoscientific trends like that today? Body mass index. Body mass index, the obesity science, is one
1: of the most salient aspects of pseudoscience that we have. It doesn't necessarily capture the same thing for all populations. The BMI, so-called relationship to health outcomes, changes by race and changes in many instances by gender. Black women have um, a heavier bone density in many instances and also um, a higher level of muscularity. So a higher muscle to fat ratio than what we find in white women. What that means is that Black women are maybe going to wear the same size clothes or even maybe look the same physically, but they're going to be heavier at the same height as a white woman, just based on various genetic facts, like
0: facts about our Constitution. But my question is, is that like, how... Like, what consequences exist for Black women specifically or might hit us harder um, when we don't meet what are considered to be, like, ideal BMI measurements?
1: When you go to the doctor, they are going to weigh you. Insurance companies are often mandating that your weight is reported. If you are considered overweight, having a body mass index of 25 or higher, or obese, having a body mass index of 30 or higher— They're going to expect that physicians are first and foremost telling you to lose weight. And there are all kinds of negative ramifications for that. There are so many instances of women, especially Black women, afraid to go to the doctor. You know, we have the legacy of how Black women have been treated at the doctor since the founding of this country. It was very difficult for us to get medical care during slavery. And then after slavery, with the professionalization of the medical establishment, we were getting inferior care. And then there was Tuskegee (laughs) and then there were sterilizations and now there's obesity science, lose weight and all of your, you know, all of your medical conditions will resolve themselves. So there's this long history of black women being mistreated in the medical industry and the utilization of BMI leads people to not want to get medical care.
0: Well, because it, it kind of puts you in this position where if you go to the doctor, you can be told for, a, I guess, a condition that doesn't necessarily correlate to your weight, that the best thing that you can do is keep your body weight down, which yeah. may not necessarily get to the bottom of your concern. But it also seems like then if you don't lose the weight, you don't want to go back to the doctor. <laughs> exactly. Um there are so many other like things that that add up to total healthcare. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering like wh- why do you think healthcare systems and sometimes providers choose to focus on like that measurement as a marker of health above like so many other things that they could be looking at in conjunction with or instead of that.
1: It could just be a simple matter of them having limited cognitive resources to devote to each patient. They have so many patients in a rapid succession that what they're trying to do is meet their needs as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so then Hmm. that becomes the easy and efficient thing for them to be able to tell people, okay, well, let's first lose weight and then see what happens. But I also want to point out that um, I have fibroids and sometimes this can cause some fluctuations in my menstrual cycle. And so there was a moment in which I was experiencing a complete, lack of a period. And so I was like, is Hmm. this related to the fibroids Is something else going on? I was trying to figure out what was happening in my body. And I went to my doctor, my primary care physician, and his response to me was to keep my weight down. Now, significantly, he could look at my chart and see that my BMI is in the quote normal range by his own standards. But Hmm. it's such an easy thing to be able to tell people, oh, you have a medical issue? Keep your weight down. I was, like, so shocked. I was so shocked that he said that to me, that I didn't say anything. But I should have said to him, down to what? Like, should I be underweight?
0: Like, what is the thing I'm going for here? (sighs) So you literally wrote the book on this type of bias. Like, you understand the origins of that encounter that you had with your doctor, like, on a very deep level, and yet you still struggled to advocate for yourself in that moment. So, like, what should the rest of us do? (laughs) Like, how am I supposed to be thinking about this research as a Black woman? I think sometimes
1: the simple awareness of the cultural biases surrounding weight can really help people to embrace who they are. Knowing that this is not a science can sometimes make it
0: easier to feel comfortable in your own skin, or at least that's that's my hope. Sabrina's BMI story got me thinking about my own experience with BMI at the doctor. When I was 25, I had a black physician for the first time since I was like nine years old. And this is back when I was running and lifting weights and sleeping eight hours per night. I was obviously unemployed and in the best shape of my life. I even had like an ab poking through. And I still didn't fit into the normal BMI range for my height. I was off by 18 pounds. And my doctor said the wildest thing to me at the time. He told me not to worry about it. I was a Black woman, he said. These measurements weren't made for me. And as a moderate drinking non-smoker who went to therapy and exercised four times a week, he thought I was already pretty healthy. I remember feeling so relieved in that moment. Being a Black woman in a doctor's office, you sometimes just feel like an amalgamation of bad health statistics. But looking back, what I also felt that day was that my doctor, a Black man, was really seeing me beyond numbers and stereotypes. And he told me that I was perfectly healthy the way I was. The Nod is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings and Kate Parkinson-Morgan. Our senior producer is Sada Abdurrahman. We are edited by Sarah Saracen. The show is mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music credits, check the show notes.